Welcome to the Ashley T. Lee Podcast. And here is Ashley. Thanks for joining me. Today we'll explore Luke 5. And you know, up to this point in Luke, Jesus had done noteworthy miracles like healing Peter's wife's mother, many demon-possessed, and masses of sicknesses. And because of that, people thronged to get near him. So why did they use the word thronged in the Bible? Well, the official definition of thronged, according to the dictionary, is flock, or be present in great numbers. Isn't that just fitting for the shepherd, Jesus? People flocked to him so he could gather his believing flock as shepherd God, just like a shepherd draws his sheep. So then we see next that flock that was gathered around Jesus was at the seashore. Because of the thronging crowd, Jesus got in Peter's boat and asked Peter to hold the boat out in shallow waters. That way he could preach freely without disturbance. And there was another reason to preach like this being out to shore. Peter could hear Jesus' message clearly, so he could learn how to shepherd the church once Jesus left the earth. Then we see in Luke 5 that Jesus heals a leper, then a paralytic that was let down from the roof at Peter's home, brought by his four friends. Jesus heals him also. Last, Jesus calls Matthew the sinful tax collector, which causes a stir among the false Jewish leaders. Keep listening to hear all the background and details about Jesus' teaching and actions in Luke 5. 1. Jesus preaches on the shoreline. Jesus had drawn the crowds with all the healings he had performed, so now it was time to teach the crowds. You see, Jesus came to teach and offer salvation, so the sensationalism from the healings needed to be coupled with teaching and preaching to make an impact so people would repent and be saved. For a little background on this scene, the disciples had been fishing all night in the deep where fish fed and slept for the night. Usually they could catch fish in the center of the lake at night, but it wasn't happening that particular night. So these fishermen by trade, Peter, James, and John, were very frustrated and exhausted when Jesus asked them to cast the boat off the shore for him to preach. Peter most likely hung on to the boat as Jesus requested. Why? So that Peter could hear clearly to learn a lesson that day. Also, Jesus being out in the water created acoustics, so everyone could hear him clearly. You see, the still water acted as a sounding board and a loudspeaker to throw his message to the beach and the hillside clearly enough that Jesus wouldn't have to raise his voice. Luke 5 begins. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. So Jesus was teaching from the boat, but what lessons did he desire for Peter and these fishermen to learn? Let's continue in Luke to see more about it. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Peter was a master fisherman, and he knew that Jesus was not. So he was letting Jesus know, We fished out in the middle of the lake all night and caught nothing. That's the appointed time to go into the middle of the lake to fish, at night. If they fish during the day, the shoreline is the preferred spot. But if you say so, Jesus, we will go out to the deep, even though it doesn't make sense. That's what Peter must have been thinking. But Jesus must have been so happy to use Peter's boat to preach, and maybe, just maybe, 
Jesus wanted to repay Peter for the use of his boat by sending him out to catch fish. But it seems that there was a greater lesson for Peter to learn. You see, Peter had to understand that he would become a fisher of men, not fish. Think about it. If Peter had not held the boat for Jesus and listened intently to the sermon, he might not have been so willing to cast the nets into the deep again. But to his surprise, they cast their nets and got so many fish that the boat was sinking. When Peter caught the biggest catch of his life, it brought him to his knees. Listen to Luke's description. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come help. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. What an interesting scene. This dramatic catch and the sermon were necessary to stir up their hearts with repentance and gratitude enough for them to forsake all and follow Jesus. So how about you? Have you repented and have a deep gratitude for how Jesus died on the cross for you? Enough to forsake your life in this world and follow Jesus? Let's take a minute to look at the progression of how Jesus changed their hearts and caught these fishermen to see how he has tried to catch our hearts in the same way. First, Jesus asked Peter to take the boat out a little from the land. Not too much to start, or else he could panic and run. Same with us. He started out small, not requiring that we get rid of all our friends right away and maybe not even changing our lives in a dramatic way. Second, Jesus asked them to launch out to the deep waters. And I can remember specifically after time, Jesus asking me to launch deep, especially when I was called to take witnessing courses that made me have to get out of my comfort zone. That was tough, but I had forsaken all and was willing to follow. Third, Jesus told them to let down their nets. I was so excited about Jesus when I got saved that I wanted to share him with everyone else. I wanted them to have the joy that I had. So that's like going down into the deep waters to invest in other people's lives. So the time Jesus spent preaching on the shoreline while Peter held onto the boat had a lot deeper meaning than we could ever imagine. These words prepared Peter for the task ahead. We all need to pray that God would continue teaching us by his shoreline through the word of God in the same way. 2. Jesus cleanses the leper. The next miracle Luke describes is a powerful one, cleansing a leper. Do you realize that the last time a leper was healed was in about 841 BC when Elisha healed Naaman? That was over 800 years before, so for Jesus to heal a leper was unheard of. Lepers for all those years were outcast, and they had to scream unclean to warn others. So when Jesus reached out to touch an unclean leper, we would have heard the throngs of those crowds gasping, <gasps> and they would have said with astonishment, he, he touched him. But then Jesus wasn't immediately affected like they would assume. In fact, he wasn't affected at all. Jesus didn't catch the leprosy, but the leper was immediately cleaned just like Hebrews 1.3 describes. 
Jesus healed with the word of his power. He said the word, and instantly the healing came. Interesting that Jesus had just preached about Naaman's healing in the temple that we covered last week in the podcast. And now he heals a leper. Luke 5 says, And it happened when he was in a certain city that, behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus. And he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then he put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priest, and make an offering for your cleansing, as testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. However, the report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. So we see the situation where the leper was healed. And once he was healed, Jesus told him not to say anything. But think of the people who'd known him all their lives. They would naturally ask, well, what happened to you? But he would have to say nothing. That would be really difficult. But Jesus didn't want everyone to follow him just for healings. He wanted them to hear his words also. But what about Jesus telling the leper to go to the priest? What was that all about? Well, Leviticus gave specific instructions for a leper once they were healed. Here was the ritual routine and its symbolism. After going to the priest, two birds were taken. One of the birds was killed, and this symbolized how Jesus, the Messiah, had to die for our sin, so that sinful man could live like this leper could live. Then the live bird was dipped in the blood of the dead bird. At this point, the leper was also sprinkled seven times with the blood of the dead bird, and this was to identify with the dead bird's shed blood. That's the symbolism of Jesus' shed blood that's sprinkled on us when we're saved. Then the living bird covered with blood was released to fly toward heaven. So the point of this sacrifice with the priest was that the blood of the flying bird was a witness to heaven that the leper was cleansed. And the blood on the actual leper sprinkled seven times, of course, was showing he was cleansed also. So this entire required ceremony displayed how sinners find a perfect Savior who covers their sin, bringing cleansing of sins. It was a picture of what Jesus did for us. Jesus died for us and shed his precious blood to atone for our sins. But there's an interesting point also that Jesus, after his death, burial, and resurrection, ascended or flew like a bird to heaven to bring atonement into heaven. Meanwhile, on earth, the sinner is sprinkled with Jesus' blood and declared cleansed to salvation, so to become part of the fellowship of God, the church. This is so amazing to look back at the Levitical cleansing to see the symbolism. God has meaning to every line of the Bible, so we need to understand it all. Jesus wanted to make sure we understood this picture of cleansing sin, so he made sure to order the leper to go to the priest to perform this. And think about the crowds at that day when they heard Jesus say, go and see the priest. They understood what this priest was going to do to the leper, so it made sense to them. After the healing of the leper, Jesus' fame spread far and wide, like Luke says in verse 15. But that makes so much sense because none of these people had ever witnessed a leper being healed. 3. Paralytic Healed Everyone was gathered at Peter's home at this point, 
And obviously, after hearing about the Messiah, Jesus, multitudes came to hear. The house was packed. So there was a paralyzed man who was brought to Jesus at this home by his four friends. Think of their agony for their friend. Maybe they used to paint the town together, running around playing as kids and then carousing as teenagers. But then something happened to their friend. Or maybe this paralysis was from birth, but they longed for their friend to be healed. Whatever the case, these four friends were keepers. Not many friends would have so much faith in Jesus to finally say, hey, there's finally an answer for our friend to be healed. But you see, it was their faith that brought healing to their friend because they're the ones that took him and went to all that trouble. This actually contradicts the way some churches treat people today when they're sick. Some churches say, well, if you had enough faith, you'd be able to get out of that wheelchair. Or if you had enough faith, you'd be healed of your sickness. But that's not true at all. This paralytic felt hopeless, and when someone feels hopeless, they don't think there's any chance for healing. We certainly cannot expect them to have faith enough to somehow attain healing. This paralytic, for example, didn't even know what his friends had in mind. He didn't know about Jesus at all. They did. They had probably seen Jesus healing others and knew, we have to bring our friend. You know, that's a good lesson for us today. It's a good reason for us to always pray for others, knowing that Jesus will honor our faith on their behalf. Here's Luke's account of the paralytic's healing. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. What a scene this was. We can clearly see that this paralytic man couldn't help himself. He couldn't get up one day and say, Let me walk out in the street and travel to Peter's home to be healed. But rather, the paralytic was dependent on his friends. But the friends reached a brick wall of people once they got to Peter's home. They thought to themselves, what can we do to get to Jesus to find healing for our friend? Well, let's go up on the roof. Interesting that most Jewish homes had roofs that were not made with tiles. That was for wealthier Romans, but evidently Peter had some wealth from either fishing business or maybe his wife's mother who lived there. Enough wealth to have a tile roof. Those are the tiles that these four friends had to break through to let their friend down for healing. But wait, they did all that work, hoping their friend would be healed, 
But their friend's sins were forgiven instead. They thought Jesus was going to heal him. These four men must have had a quick stomach drop when they heard Jesus say, Your sins are forgiven, instead of hearing, You're healed. Bottom line, they wanted healing, not forgiveness. But when the healing followed, they realized forgiveness does heal. You know, that's how it is today with us. I remember repenting for forgiveness and believing in Jesus. But then lots of broken relationships were healed, and things in my life changed. Jesus saved me once I repented of my sins, but then He healed my heart. And then He actually has been healing my ailments all these years. I was crushed between two golf carts years ago, and as time has gone on, there's been new treatments and different things that seems like God revealed to me. It goes in stages where I'll get better for a while, and then I praise God about it. But then later, more surprises occur, and I get even better. If I was totally healed at one point, I might not be as dependent on God as He wants. And I also pray with more expectation. So if you have an ailment, don't stop praying for solutions and healing, because God does hear your prayers. You know, we can think about Apostle Paul with the thorn in his flesh. He had some type of ailment, but he never stopped praying for healing. That's a good example for us to follow. So in this scene where the crowd was filling the home of Peter and Jesus healed the paralytic, the onlooking Pharisees and rabbis were gathering information to trap Jesus. They wanted to accuse him of something. These false leaders and teachers were suspicious, prejudiced, and hostile toward Jesus and his followers. They were searching for something to criticize, but they kept falling short. Why? because Jesus did nothing wrong. Think of this scene of their dagger eyes. Before the paralytic showed up, the tension must have been thick in the air, thick enough to cut with a knife. But then someone was banging on the roof. The tension was finally relieved. Then again, after Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, we see that tense words were exchanged where Jesus overcame their objections. These false leaders couldn't trap Jesus that day, but they would continue trying, just like Satan who prowls around daily like a lion, hoping to devour someone. 4. Jesus Calls Matthew When Jesus called Matthew the tax collector, everyone was shocked. You see, tax collectors were usually Jews who collaborated with Romans for tax collection, but they were also crooked, taking money off the top for themselves. For that reason, Tax collectors were excommunicated from Jewish religious activities. And here we see Jesus calling Matthew a tax collector to be part of his religion? What? That made no sense to onlookers, especially the false Jewish leaders. So how did Jesus call Matthew? He showed up at his office and said, follow me. Well, we see Matthew went right away, closed up shop. So we can figure, in order for Matthew just to pick up and leave like that, that he must have known the disciples and maybe seen lots of Jesus' miracles. Luke covers this saying, After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. So it was just like that. You know, in looking and analyzing Matthew's reaction, it's interesting to see how he reacted versus how some people who are saved react. Some people saved by Jesus spend time alone and reflect on their new commitment, while others run out and share their faith right away. That's what Matthew did. 
He left all, and then he called all his friends who were like him so they could meet Jesus the Messiah for themselves. This all happened at a banquet at his house. Well, there was a problem because, of course, the Pharisees and the scribes came around to even the banquet to see what's going on. And they got to see that all these people were just like Matthew, crooked in all their ways. So guess what? They were accusing Jesus of hanging out with sinners. Luke continues, Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And the scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Yes, Matthew's guests were sinners, but Jesus explained that he came to save sinners. Let's look closely to check out the guests at Matthew's house for a minute. Remember, he was pretty much shut out of the temple, so his friends would also be the type of people shut out of the religious events. So we see that Luke says Matthew gave a great feast in his house, inviting tax collectors and others. Well, the word others in Greek means others of the same kind. So those would be sinful men who did devious and unlawful things on a daily basis. So the false Jewish leaders were not only appalled that Jesus called Matthew, but that Matthew had a feast and Jesus sat with these sinful men. If one of the Pharisees had gone to a meal at Matthew's house as a guest, they would lose their position and standing. Same with the scribes, rabbis, and even the Sanhedrin. So the false leaders were shocked and angry over the actions of Jesus, but they were too afraid to go after Jesus anymore. No, they left Jesus alone, but then decided to pick on the disciples. Luke finishes, Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees? But yours eat and drink. And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear. And also, the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. The false leaders attacked, saying, Why do your disciples not fast and pray? You see, John the Baptist practiced self-denial by fasting and praying, but Jesus didn't. He had fellowship and ate with tax collectors and sinners. Like Jesus said, I came for sinners. Then there was the bridegroom analogy. He was the bridegroom of the new faith about to begin, the church. As long as Jesus was here on earth, his followers would celebrate the long-awaited Messiah. But once he left, then they would fast and pray. Jesus gave two parables to demonstrate his point. First, he talks about garments. No one puts a new piece of garment on old clothes. What happens is that the jeans, for example, have been washed many times, and then a new piece is sewn on, It's going to shrink, and then it's going to create a bigger tear. So Jesus' point was that he didn't come to patch up Judaism by sewing some new religious ideas onto the old Judaism traditions. 
No, Judaism was beyond repair. Jesus' plan was to give a new garment or a new religion, Christianity. The new garment was his own teaching, rooted in God's Word and not associated one bit with the rabbinical teaching of that day. All of those false teachings and traditions had to go. Throw them out like an old torn garment. It's interesting that God threw out the old Judaism when Jesus died on the cross. God reached down from heaven in the temple and tore the temple veil in two, top to bottom. This action showed that Judaism was no longer in existence. Judaism was null and void. In the second parable, Jesus talked about wineskins. You see, in the Bible days, wineskins were made of goatskins. In time, they would expand and thin out to become seamed and torn so that you wouldn't use wineskins again to put new wine in because the skins would break and all the wine would be wasted. Of course, this was referring again to Judaism, the old wineskin. The new wine was Jesus' teaching from God's Word, full of power. New wine from Jesus couldn't be poured into old, torn Judaism, but the church had to have something brand new to maintain strength. But then the scribes and Pharisees couldn't handle these parables, had nothing to say. They were speechless. But that sure didn't keep them from sending people to investigate how to trap Jesus. In fact, in John 3, Nicodemus was sent by the Pharisees to question Jesus, and he was told, you must be born again. He, among others, found out nobody could trap the Son of God, and no one could argue back. You know, the members of these religious institutions, temples, Sanhedrin, and synagogues, were too far gone for reform. The members were overflowing with dead religion, full of dead rituals, controversies, and man-made rules and regulations. Jesus had no intention of pouring new wine of Christianity into wineskins of legalism and prejudice. In addition, it was exclusivity that was going on, secret society-type exclusivity. Jesus was saying, all this has got to go. To finish up Luke, he added something said by Jesus. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new. For he says, the old is better. What does Jesus mean here? Well, he's concluding that the ones who are influenced by the false rabbis, teachers, and scribes, full of traditions, will be slow and reluctant to accept the new teachings of Jesus. A great example would be people feasting at a banquet. They have old wine that they've been drinking, and then all of a sudden new sweet wine is introduced and they're going to resist that change of taste. Another example is with the Apostle Paul. Of course, Paul resisted that new wine of Christianity, and he worked so hard to kill Christians, and even stood by when Stephen preached new wine messages. That resulted in Stephen being stoned to death. Paul stood by holding Stephen's clothes and cheering the stoning on. Very sad, but look at the understanding this gave Paul and then to his trainee Luke. Paul knew about the old wineskins and patching up torn jeans with a new patch. Paul used to be the worst of sinners with Judaism legalistic ways, but now Paul knew the truths of Jesus. The new wine he taught was Christianity for the church, not legalistic traditions of false Jewish leaders. Interesting that the Romans who respected Paul would be affected by these words of Luke written specifically for them. The Romans could now have the understanding and knowledge to be rightfully saved by repenting and believing in the work of Jesus Christ. They could know that Jesus died for their sins too. 
Praise God that he cared enough for Romans to share this word through Luke, and we get to enjoy it and learn from it also. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time for more of Luke. Thank you for joining us for the Ashley T. Lee Podcast. This podcast was produced by Bob Sloan Audio Productions. And to find out more about Ashley, go to ashleytlee.com. If you would like to help or contribute to Ashley T. Lee Ministries, click on Contact 